So what I realized from my foundation growing up was I had a very soft, soft mind. And I live that way now, like that boxer training for that big fight. You know, I live that way all the time. So I always, I'm always sharpening my sword. And how I sharpen my sword is I have a mentality of my refrigerator is never full. I've never arrived. And every time I get close to the top of a mountain, I fall back down on purpose. I believe that true growth is at scratch. Starting from scratch is true growth. You have to have friction in your life. There has to be friction in your life for you to be able to move forward. Happy New Year. Welcome one and all to Nick's Nonfiction. I'm your host, comic Nick Munez. To kick the year off on the right foot, we have got a motivational message for you today. We have the bestseller synopsized, David Goggins, Can't Hurt Me. You are in danger of living a life so comfortable and soft that you will die without realizing your true potential. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to unshackle your mind, ditch the victim's mentality forever, own your life completely by building an unbreakable foundation. In order to execute this mission, you gotta do your job to the best of your ability, and this is going to hurt. Greatness doesn't care about your feelings, you are here to have a greater impact on the world. David says, don't stop when you're tired, stop when you're done. Today's show is an origin story of a hero, the most refined warrior in the history of American Special Forces. David has been through Army Ranger, Dev Grew, SEAL Team 6 training. He went through Air Force Pararescue training. One of David's big theories is the 40% rule. Most people give up when they still have 60% left in the tank. He's saying you've got a gold mine underneath your feet. You just got to dig a little bit deeper. David was born into a house smothered in depression. Today's show is a uh, autobiography, basically. So it's going to be a skimpy about the author. Every single chapter comes with a challenge, a mission to improve your own discipline. About the author, David Goggins. First of the new year. It's feeling right. The first Tuesday... Goggins grew up in government-subsidized housing. He was on welfare his entire childhood life, a bottom-of-the-barrel upbringing. Was beat up, called the N-word in school. We're going to get into all of these stories. This about the authors to introduce some of his ideas. David Goggins gets a lot of his mantras from Epicureanism. He's one of these old-time Marcus Aurelius Stoic philosophers. He thinks you should... Give 100% every day. If you do 1% better today, and you do that every day, by the end of the year, you're three times the man as when you started. David considers himself a Buddhist now. You'll see towards the end of his career, he turns into a yogi, and he is still going. This is a two-year-old book, Reaching New Heights. He turned to the Buddhism. He's like a Sherpa for self-torture. He's given speeches at MIT graduations. He's got like 3 million followers on the social media networks. David Goggins is quoted saying, There's something to be said for living it instead of studying it. A lot of people know what the struggle is. What you say is true for most people is not true for 100% of people. There will always be a 1% who are willing to put the work in to defy the odds. He's saying anybody can be unchained from whatever 
prison and you've put yourself in your own mind. Yeah, the man wants to keep you down. He does, but you could go find some bootstraps to pull yourself up by. Herculitis said, out of every hundred soldiers, ten shouldn't even be there on the battlefield. Eighty of these men are targets. Nine are the real fighters. That's only ninety-nine, right? Ah, but the one. The one is the warrior. Herculitis definitely would identify David as this refined warrior. It's going to be a fun read today, more of a story, a novel than a nonfiction, even though it's all true and very inspiring at that. So go check out the social medias, Harry Shit on Instagram. You're getting a free meme every night. We're going to have all kinds of new content coming out on the Patreon page this year, a few weeks until our first whip clip for January. I hope you're liking the new graphics as well, minor changes, the same old great show with the same old great host to chapter one. I should have been a statistic. You can find hell in the most beautiful neighborhoods in the country. For David Goggins, this was Williamsville in Buffalo, New York. He was surrounded by people living the American dream, white picket fences. For him, hell was a corner lot on Paradise Road. Often when you're driving through a neighborhood, people will attribute the best qualities they want to see like you're not going to prod too deep you see what you want to when you drive through these white picket fence neighborhoods when there's usually someone getting beaten senselessly inside covid up to the amount of women who are getting uh domestically abused david's point is the facade isn't what you're always going to see he's really starting out with the stoic point you gotta be a fire smoldering underneath the stern face all of these ideas you're going to see today are latent with self-growth, all of these patterns. So let's enjoy the story. David lived with the devil himself, who he considered his father, a working class man who would snap behind closed doors. David felt safer on the playground or on the streets than he did at home. He couldn't wear shorts around because he had to hide the bruises that his dad was leaving on him. He felt as though he had nowhere to hide. His dad, at the age of 20, was a Coca-Cola distributor in town. Is that a sign for something? And then he bought a roller rink with the money. This is the 70s. He was definitely slinging more than Coke and Pepsi. By 36, he moved the rink downtown in Bluff Buffalo, New York. Bluffalo. He met his mom there, 19 years old, and his dad was 36. <laughs> she was half his age. In 1971, his older brother was born. And then in 1975, David Goggins was bequeathed onto the earth. His early memories of Skateland was not all hellish. They would have family dinners there, which he liked, but they only lasted 10 minutes before the doors would open 7 p.m. every night, and every family member had a heart part to play. His mother was the cashier. She was never allowed to open her own banking account. And it was clear to David that his brother Trunus, the four-year-old brother, was going to be the heir of the roller rink empire. And so his dad ditched to the DJ booth from time to time, and they would go upstairs to the bar, leaving David and Trunus to run the whole thing. This was a happening place, Buffalo Roller Rink in the 60s, 70s. Rick James, O.J. Simpson, Teddy Pendergrass, Sister Sledge, all of them were coming through the roller rink. David's dad was a well-known man. If he was older, he said he may have appreciated this cultural moment that he was a part of, but as a kid, he resented all the chummy business and fake smiles that was going on upstairs. Trunnus, he 
took well to the business attitude. He starts running prostitutes through the Fort Erie Canadian border in their teen years, and his dad is cheating with all of these whores. He talked about his dad was a black belt when it came to dealing with his mother. He was slapping her backhand, front hand, belt, taking her by the hair, dragging her down the hallways. And he was always wondering, why are the cops not doing anything? He was greasing them up. His dad had connections in town. They knew he was pushing product through the roller rink. He was well-connected. He just gave the cops a wife-beating tax, and they were on their merry way. David tried to find his own communities, like these kids who have parents who are still love movement hippies. They enlist in the military. I see it at my age. So David joins the Cub Scouts, and he's going, I feel awesome in this uniform. I feel like I'm upholding society. And when I go and my dad and and Trunnis are just drinking and gambling around me, it's uh, devaluing the uniform. You see, he had some military in his genes. I think it was his grandpa was in the Air Force. David took beatings from his dad. He would say he would bleed from his ears often. One day he uh, came home, he snuck out of school, and he went home to make a lunch, and his dad wound up going home that same day. It's like a sitcom scene. They're sneaking around the house. He's trying to go out the upstairs window. But David's dad, he caught him. He pulled a gun on young Goggins and was going, (laughs) I'm not taking this gun away from your head. And David's going, Dad, it's me, it's me, you see? Put the gun down. David's dad is a psycho. He pushes the Luger to his third eye, leaves a barrel mark on his forehead, and is going, you better get back to school right now, David. Do you think I won't pull the trigger on my own son? And David's like, just kill me. If this means I don't have to work at the roller rink anymore, I'll take some lead to the head. Not a great father-son relationship. The neighborhood knew what was up. They knew they couldn't step in for all the connections that David's dad had. He could have had anybody whacked who was going to break up his family. Wrapping up chapter one, David was continuously falling behind on his standardized test scores and his reading ability was levels below his peers. Every year they would interview him in school to be in the special classes. David Goggins sitting there next to kids in helmets, people with drool on their shirt, and he's like, I know that I need to be brought up to speed, but if I join these classes, it's going to stigmatize me. So he starts cheating his ass off in school. He's got to find one way around it. This guy's a problem solver. This brings us to our first challenge. David is saying, identify the blockers in your life. Write it down. Just set a timer, one minute, 60 seconds, and see how many of these blockers in your life you are able to flip. Are these uh, permanent blockers or something that you could get over by setting up smaller goals? He says even better in this challenge, identifying your blockers, tell this to another person. It's going to depth in your soul. Now they know what you are struggling with. And it uh, puts it out there into the ether. Now you have someone else holding you accountable. This takes us to chapter two, Truth Hurts. PTSD and poverty are one hell of a combination, especially at a young age or an old age. Go talk to your local war veteran. Wilmoth Irving starts to be his uh, new father. They ran away to some town in Indiana, got away from that abusive dad. He keeps on slinging coke and roller skates in Buffalo. There in the Midwest, Wilmoth Irving is the new father figure, and he taught David defensive discipline and a smooth jump shot. He taught him how to reason, like (laughs) in his formative 
years, he was only taught that violence was the way to deal with things, which maybe got twisted into his self-punishment. Who am I to say Wilmoth Irving taught him some critical thinking skills and how to be part of a team. And in eighth grade, they went to downtown Indianapolis. Wilmoth Irving, he had a past criminal life of his own, and it wound up catching up with him. So David's joining the eighth grade basketball team. Wilmoth Irving's coming to his games. He's starting to seem like he has a normal life. Then Wilmoth Irving is pronounced dead. He was shot in a town over. We don't need to get too bogged down with this character, but the Goggins, the mom, Trunus, and David, start squatting in this dead man's house. And he's like, these are extremely desperate times. They're calling for desperate measures. His mom was working at a historically black college at the time, and they weren't paying her enough to, you know, a livable wage, have a car, support her two kids. Single mom, not so powerful during that time. They told her... Even with her connections at the university where she worked, David was doing so poorly in school, he wouldn't make it in with his mom being in the administration. Along comes high school freshman year for David, and he wants to be on this basketball team, but his GPA is not sufficient, so he's cheating. He gets better at cheating than he is at learning. By sophomore year, he gained a reputation for being a good baller and his hip-hop knowledge His mom said that his friends were becoming thugs, and they move outside of Indianapolis to Brazil, Indiana. This is on the outskirts. It's not a great town. This is where the hicks meet the urban life. (laughs) It's a diverse area. He couldn't trash talk as hard because his coaches here were thinking, you know, we don't do that in the suburbs. This is a nice place. We don't want to stoke racial violence. A couple decades later, 1995, in Brazil, Indiana, the KKK was approved to march down the main street. This town has some racist bones. David, he got a hangman drawn on his locker one year, and people start calling him the N-word. Malcolm X becomes David's best interest. He leans into the thug act. He's like, if they're going to call me black, I'm going to fit into every single stereotype to mess with these racists. He starts sagging his pants. Real quick for me, spell Sagan backwards. N I G G A. It's a psyop. He's blasting Snoop Dogg out of his subwoofers on the main strip of Brazil. He went to a diner with a girl one day and she wound up cursing him out like they were having a nice date and then all of her friends came. They're like, oh my god, 1950s, you're wearing a poodle skirt. Are you having dinner with the black kid? So she had to turn on him. Another sitcom scene. David, he's getting feeling the brunt of that real racism. For his junior year, he was kept off of the basketball team because of his GPA. You can't cheat to the end. And school became irrelevant for him now that he can't even play sports there. And he's turning towards the Air Force, the armed forces in general. He takes the ASVAB armed service vocational aptitude battery test which is the military's SAT he cheated on that and he still failed he had access to all the old test copies he took pictures of people who got C's and D's couldn't pass it and he's failing school his mom's gonna find out who's in a system of higher education he starts hiding his report cards I had a friend growing up who (laughs) Four times a year, it was the best. Every marking period, me and him would burn his report card. He's like, my dad's not finding out how I did. 
and it was ceremonial. We would laugh our asses off. <laughs> David was a sneak. He knew how to get around the system. It was DePaul University that his mom was working at. And one day she sat him down and she's like, I'm kicking you out of the house. You need to learn this lesson young. Academia isn't there for you. You're at a dead end. And David only lasted a couple weeks until he came back home and he had a long, hard look in the mirror. The next day he started what was called his accountability mirror. He put post-it notes and quotes warrior knowledge all around his face that he would wake up and shave his head and his chin in. He started with really simple things. Pull up your pants, wash the dishes. And when those things became habit, he went on to quotes to remember, poetry, a lot of Sun Tzu he started with. Victorious warriors win first and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first and then seek to win. Sun Tzu, victory is a reserved for those who are willing to pay its price. Opportunity multiplies as they are seized. He's learning bigger ideas, the tipping points. As a high schooler, just trying to get on track, he's got a growth mindset, as your employer would call it. He starts to realize that the world is fucked, and the only way to change it is starting from within. He said this is when he started shedding his victimhood, and he started exercising outside of his basketball practices. So maybe he had a little bit of talent. This is when he starts going full monk. He gets rid of all of his thug friends that he had. Like we said, he shaved his head. He stopped sitting with anybody at lunch. He switches to smooth jazz instead of Jay-Z when he's bumping down Main Street. David becomes a Sherpa. He said he was in the most discomfort that he ever felt. He was on the outskirts of every group in town, but he was loving this. This was his new fuel, and he starts running. One day, David did 13 miles for no good reason. A couple of the race kids in town apparently drove around him with a pickup truck and said hey n-word what are you running from but now david has a purpose he's like i'm training for the air force the, all these miles are going towards something and he's thinking once you change your mind you can change anything and when you escape from a place that had you feeling trapped your mind is then exposed to those vulnerabilities what were those again chapter one roadblocks that you were setting up for yourself that had you trapped so his challenge here for chapter two, the truth hurts, is stare yourself in the mirror for the length of a short meditation, five to ten minutes, do not look away, you and your own pupils. It's impossible when you're looking yourself in the eye to lie to yourself. I'm sure some people are able to do it. The more you have these truthful moments, the more you're going to be in tune with your own goals. Chapter three, the impossible task. David gets what he thinks is his dream job from 19 to 23 years old. He's working on an Air Force base, and he chose the profession in which he was around the least people possible. He becomes a rat collector for a long time, and he is accustomed to the smell of death, trolling around all these Air Force bases, pulling carcasses of rodents out of the walls. In those four years, what he thought was going to be him turning into a man he ballooned up from 175 to 300 pounds he sewed a sock into the inner stitch of his work pants so that they wouldn't split when he would bend over to pick up rats 
He loved creeping around at night because there was no one around and he would get to wear his mask. He felt protected and safe. But when he would hit a reflection, he was like, I don't see myself in there. Who is this fat stormtrooper who's got the most small animal kills in the Midwest? Who is this guy? He says there's usually light at the end of the tunnel, but not when you let your eyes adjust to the darkness. He succumbed to what he thought this was going to be his future was. David was so damn numb that he got into a passionless marriage. He took another overnight job at a hospital and he ran into a roach guy there who was like, get out of the military, I could get you a 30% raise. And so he leans into this exterminator business. David goes from exterminator to terminator in his life cycle. And he starts watching some, like, history channels, some stuff that's reminding him him of his short days in the military. He heard this story about a pararescue man who fell out of the sky. They were free-falling, and one guy's chute didn't work. So he gave his chute to the other man in midair, and then this guy hit the ground at 100 miles per hour. He bounced 30 feet, bounced 10 feet. He was pronounced dead on the operating table twice they said this guy was never gonna live he lived and then he went on to jump from the sky again and david is like this is my life i feel like i am falling without a parachute what is going to be the rock bottom what is it when you hit the ground david he's thinking i need a change here i'm not going to be the rat exterminator forever there was a story he went into like a roach haven there was an entire column in the wall full of roaches he's like this is it got to get back into the military so he decides he wants to try to be a pararescue the best of the air force where he joined as a plebe before he said he only makes it into the pararescue program six weeks and it's like a three-month program to fashion you into the best savior soldiers the pjs are the guys that get taken into a hot war zone and have to extract forward operators guys who are bleeding to death they need to get them back to the extraction point these guys are special ops david thinks he could do that from a 300 pound forum and at that six week point the doctor was telling him you know this kind of looks like your knee isn't doing too good are you how are you feeling about this whole program and david admits that at this point he bowed out his first failure in the special ops training and the weeks following he went back to his old routine he backslid to his 7 a.m rat tosses he's going to steak and shake by 12 o'clock buying donuts at 7-eleven he moves back to caramel indiana with his wife and daughter wound up marrying that girl from uh the earlier story in the diner who called him the n-word So it worked out. She wasn't the true racist. She was just brainwashed by the culture of the town. David was feeling it. He was like, I'm back into the, I'm going to be the exterminator again. He would go to his mom who would cook him a breakfast buffet every week, a half a pound of bacon, a half a pound of fruity pebbles, cinnamon rolls. And one day when he was with his mom, he was sitting there watching TV. And for 45 minutes, he couldn't take his eyes off. There was this program following the Navy Buds basic underwater demolition team. It was their hell week. (laughs) He was going, these men look a million times more miserable than those at the pararescue that I was trying to train with. And the line that stuck with him, this is, I'm getting goosebumps already. They said in the program, 
There's an intense fascination with men who detest mediocrity, men who refuse to define themselves in conventional terms. That could be the blurb for stoicism. You want to go above and beyond settling for finding out your true potential in life. Goggins, he drudged his body in front of the accountability mirror and drank in his now 300-pound face and everything that the haters said over the years is true. You're a fat nothing, Goggins. You have a dead-end future. You can't even read. Pooling at the bottom with all the dregs. He's seeing himself in his eyes again. For the first time, David is once again awake. And so this next morning, he only ate half of the breakfast that he normally would. That commercial is consuming his mind like a virus. And he feels his old uh, drill instructors in his head that entire week. David thinks the only way to get this out of his mind is to pass the BUDS Marine Training Course. And he has less than three months to lose 106 pounds. His impossible mission. 30 pounds a month, that is not healthy. A pound a day. The ASVAB he had to pass as well, which is that military SATs once again. David quits his exterminator job and he decides he's going to take up running again. He got one final milkshake, his own comfort tea. He sat down on his couch strapped on his running shoes at 300 pounds he sets out his front door for a four mile run david goggins lasted 400 yards his heart is racing he's dizzy his legs are shaking he's back at his house looking at his chocolate milkshake and he just drinks it in sadness and he breaks out in tears all of his fears and insecurities bottled up for 20 years of fatherhood beatings coming out he doesn't know what to help him he has no one to call no one to turn to he puts on rocky in his vhs his favorite movie he fast forwards to round 14 fighting apollo creed you gotta get up rock and his only choice david is going i'm going to run those four miles (laughs) he goes back out his front door throws that milkshake in the garbage he only makes it another quarter mile 400 more meters This makes him realize, I just gave up halfway. You know, this isn't exactly when he has his 40% rule realization. However, he's going even from your beginning physical state. Your limits are a myth that your mind is putting up there to protect you. You can almost always push yourself harder. He starts putting out so much effort to lose these 106 pounds that he gets depression. He has no fuel coming in he's barely eating he'll have grilled chicken and some vegetables once a day his weapon of choice becomes the stationary bicycle putting in hundreds of miles on that thing a week he hits a plateau at 215 pounds with like four weeks to go and eventually david gets into the buds program he cheated again to pass that asvab And his uh, wife was like, you're going to go all the way down to Southern California to go try to play army man? I'm having a baby here. And David's point was there are 4 million new mothers a year in the U.S. and only a couple hundred buds. This chapter, challenge number three, is step outside your comfort zone daily. Even if you're not a runner, even if you don't like being around your coworkers, you're a night worker like he was. Step out of your comfort zone every damn day. There's something to be learned. Chapter 4, 
taken souls. He started us off, whatever that five minutes of fury is, when you get off the bus and you're in boot camp, the drill instructors are allowed to lay into you, which I'm hearing that's not the case anymore. People are allowed to, like, file complaints about drill instructors. You know, it's men, women, and trans standing in line together, so... There's this new HR in the military. It's not the same. David got the full treatment. He was said that Chris Kyle was in one of the other classes in his training period. These are some of the biggest, baddest warriors in the history of our armed forces. The best military in the world. David, he's at the BUDS training. They run him off the bus under M60 fire. They put him on the grinder. If you've ever watched videos of these programs, there's the training pool, and then there's this slab of concrete misery and blood, sweat, and tears where they make these Marines sweat all of their weakness out. David, he's getting intimately familiar with this over the training period, which lasts six months. He's only in phase one, which is the PT. Phase two is diving school. Phase three is a land war. There's 120 men that joined, and maybe 30 will pass. You earn that trident patch. You get the frogman status. It's uh, There's some accolades to be had. David made it to Hell Week, which is the third week. You're up for 130 hours, minimal sleep, and it's the hardest PT of your life. It is built to reveal your mindset, not just how far your body can take you, your brain. <laughs> Even by Hell Week, David said 40 guys dropped. You know, they make you ring the bell in front of everybody, say out loud that you're quitting. Psycho Pete was the drill instructor that had David's number. His favorite way to haze the people was called getting sandy. He would have the people run around in the water and then roll in the sand so they looked like a sugar cookie, and then they'd have to run two miles back to the slab fighting off hypothermia only to go do more PT. The whole issue with Hell Week is that there is no escape. You have to be able to come to terms with a new prison, like uh, Shawshank Redemption. You know, there's different kind of prisons out there. If you put yourself up to this military training, you are surrendering yourself, so don't try to fight it anymore at that point. Realize you are a drop in the river. David made it five and a half days without sleep during that hell week, and he starts getting admitted to the infirmary. Something with his lungs is up. He didn't let Psycho Pete get the best of him. He started making everybody sing out on the beach when they were carrying the boats. So David, he left Pete with more galvanized men. He took a bit of Pete's edge off. Unfortunately, David got pneumonia. It was that lung bug for a third time and he was spitting up gallons of mucus every single day during these training sessions and unfortunately he failed out he had to be cycled back to the beginning wah, wah, wah. and so david you know he went home in this meantime his wife was like you're not gonna leave me again he's like i failed now twice and this time it was because of my body failed on me it wasn't my mind that failed i'm going back for it he said this group that he had the second time around at Bud's was even scragglier. These kids didn't know what they uh, signed up for <laughs> the second hell week. David said he was the leader. Like, everybody was looking up to him. He had been through this before. Psycho Pete was not giving him any sort of leeway. He made him vomit blood this time. 
David's learning. Even though I am the best in the class, we are stronger together. I need all of these men to carry the boat above their head with me. And so David knew that Psycho Pete could run all of his crew members into the ground. But this was never going to stop David. He wanted to be unbreakable. And this is what he calls taking souls. Whatever your advisor wants you to do, he's saying do that and 50% more. This person is going to be left speechless at your ability to get the job done. That's taking a soul. This time around, David made it once again to Hell Week. And his knee was given out. (laughs) He's a bigger guy at this point, still that linebacker size. And his patella started to shatter. Remember in Air Force training, they were like, your knee kind of looks like it has a stress fracture. And he pushed out. This time he pushed his knee to shatter under the weight of his own body. So David, he's losing touch. He's like, I'm never going to be able to pass this. This brings him to challenge four which was to get into a competition every day. Even if it's with yourself, say, I want to do this much more work than I did yesterday. Playing within your mind is supposed to strengthen your soul. It's going to bring us to chapter 5, an armored mind. David, we'll skip ahead a little bit. He went to the third Bud's training. He has the most attempts at any special force operation in the history of the United States, he is like a, nothing's going to stop this guy. They know who they want within the first few days. And David's like, no, you want me as one of your Delta Force Rangers. I am going to be the best whether you like it or not. That's that resilient attitude, he says, is necessary to make it to the top in anything. He learned during that third time that he made it through that your sympathetic nervous system, this is that inner bitch voice that tells you to quit. Within 20 minutes of any sort of activity, that voice goes away. It's just controlling that initial hump to get over. It's like that law of five minutes. Do something you hate for five minutes, and then after that, it gets a whole lot easier. His mom was super helpful getting him through that third buds. His wife was not. He goes through a few wives throughout the story. Along with the taking souls, David said he knew he gained a sixth sense for when people were going to quit so he has a mental edge on people now he knows when his mind would tell him to quit so he sees it within other people this was if you've ever read this book it's national bestseller i'm sure some people out there have the whole boat crew too ain't nothing gonna stop boat crew too baby dave goggins is a absolute leader what's the thing a boss tells uh, people what to do and a leader gets down and carries the boat with them that is truly David challenge five is going to be to isolate one of those 3,000 thoughts that humans have per hour make it last the entire hour practice in meditation but also self-discipline you learn this if you're a runner like David Goggins on all of his three million click stories that he makes now He says you're not allowed to listen to any music when you're running. He's like, this is you and your own mind. Obviously, you don't have to take every single one of his tips. This guy knows what he's talking about. That is a trip. It'll teach you to make a thought last for a long time as I'm able to make a book last for an hour and a half. Chapter 6. It's not about a trophy. David, he is in the community. He feels accomplished. He has made it to the heights where he probably shouldn't have in this life. He should have been a statistic. He's at the 
like a hundred mile race that they hold for all the Marines down there in Coronado. The record is within 24 hours, this man ran 144 miles. And this transitions to the half of the book where he's doing his ultra marathons. This is what David is more so known for now. Body's a machine. This was his first big race. David signed up for this. He's like, I passed buds. I could do anything. It's just my pussy brain that's stopping me. It was called the San Diego One Day. And since 2005, these ultras have blown up exponentially in popularity. There was a $2,000 cash prize the year that David entered. And there was a Japanese girl who was the leader. We'll get to know a little bit more about her. His wife, his new wife, who we had for only two months came to support him she bought a box of hostess donuts for the man who's about to run 100 miles the day before david was saying he's like i have a viking mentality me he goes this is dumb in hindsight but him and one of his marine buddies went and did a crossfit workout he ran the night before his big race his nutrition is fluff sandwiches and donuts crispy cream he met a big character at this race san diego one day Chris Costner. This guy is a triple Ironman runner. He's ran 100 milers in Alaska. He biked the entirety of the United States. This guy is one of the greatest athletes, he thinks. And he goes, the most impressive warriors, people who put themselves to this, crumble under the ultra marathon. And there's only a couple ultra marathons a year in the U.S. back at that time. Chris Cosman ran the Bad Water 135, and this is through Death Valley. <laughs> You're running where there should be no living organisms, hundreds of miles, and it's like thousands of feet of elevation. We'll get into that more later. In San Diego, David, he fell behind in the beginning of the race. Mrs. Ongisaki was the Asian leader at the 50-mile mark. He felt iron-shoed, brittle-boned. Costman was keeping a close eye on him at this time because he knew this was David's first. This guy was still the size of a nose tackle. He was 300 pounds of muscle, and he's like, this guy's body isn't made for an ultra, and he's eating fried chimkin. Everybody's looking out for David here. 12 hours in, he completed 70 miles with zero training. And he's going, this is my reward. I have piss running down my leg. My nipples are bleeding. You know, people shit themselves when they do these races. That's just a side effect. You do that as part of it. You hope no one's taking your picture at that time. <laughs> you wear a diaper. His wife gave him a couple peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. He rested for 20 minutes. And in the next four hours, he only ran 11 miles. It's up to, what, 75 miles? This is what David calls the time to open up your cookie jar of past victories. He's saying, I passed through the special SEALs training, lost 200 pounds, I passed the hardest tests, taught myself how to read. One at a time, mile by mile, he chews on one of these cookies. As a kid in Brazil, he had a story where he had to savor a cookie for an entire night. It's probably where the cookie jar comes from. But you probably do this too. When you're trying to get through something, you tell yourself, I've done this before. This isn't a big deal, and then you just do it. Don't let nobody else steal your cookies from the cookie jar. He's saying especially at this race, there's like no trophy. He's not going to beat Ingasaki for $2,000. 
There are no souls to take. Maybe Chris Kosman shoving in his face that you ran it the first time. He's going, you have to go into yourself. And he talks about <laughs> the pain is a cookie. There's not many times in your life, unless you're giving birth, and you still probably low-key enjoy that. <laughs> There's not as many times in your life that you're going to be that stimulated. And I sound like an extreme masochist right now. However, pain is a big motivator. He's going, this level of pain, even if I do or don't achieve it later, that is a oatmeal cookie. Pain. Painful to eat. <laughs> David wound up running 101 miles with 90 minutes left, 23 and a half hours or whatever. He got his second wind of an entire marathon. <laughs> Paid a price. We said he was peeing blood before. He lost 7 out of 10 toenails. This was just a part of the reward because now he says, I have a new... I have a new level mind. This unlocked a new part of me that I wouldn't have gotten without suffering this much. 100 miles, no formal training, shit diet. He refused all of the painkillers at the ER. Telling you, this guy's a beast. Challenge six, he said to take inventory of your cookie jar. Chapter seven, the most powerful weapon. David, he couldn't walk for 27 hours after this race. Still made it into work on Monday, was given the day off, still insisted on coming in. I ran a 13 miles, like a half marathon as a teenager. I was doing cross country. Couldn't walk for at least 12 hours after. <laughs> you get out of the shower. I'm like crawling out like a slug all wet. <laughs> yeah, train yourselves if you're going to do these things. It seriously takes a toll on you. For these long races, these 100 milers, I can't even imagine. You will get hurt. That's the point. There's no way around it. You have to push yourself through that point. Even though you put in 100-mile weeks, it's inhumane to put yourself through that. Who else has? It's like standing on top of Everest. No one else has been this high. David, he's relishing in the success that he challenged himself. He emails Chris Kosman. He's going, you hear about this? 101 miles, 18 hours, 56 minutes. <laughs> Kosman's like, yeah, yeah, congrats. First time, you fat ass. I'm impressed. Why'd you stop at 101? There were 24 hours. Why'd you stop running? <laughs> anyway, here's the link to the Badlands race announcements. The one that he schedules 130 miles through the desert. That link that he sent Goggins was a ton of uh, ultra marathons. David was really interested in the Hurt 100. This was in Oahu in a rainforest. 2,400 vertical feet you're running like three laps for 30 miles <laughs> it was a couple months after the san diego one day david still couldn't walk and he entered his wife into a half a marathon goes with her to vegas runs with her the last six miles david having not ran in half a year was like you know i'm just gonna sign up for a marathon it's one marathon what it can't hurt doesn't really wind up hurting him it pushed him to another level he is obviously addicted to it at this point at that las vegas marathon too he qualified for boston time which is three hours and 10 minutes i believe for 26 miles he qualified during his first legit marathon and this is when he's saying we habitually sh sell ourselves short in Las Vegas, he was 16 out of 26 in, and he thought he was going to have to quit because he ran another six with his 
wife beforehand and he was only 40 percent done and we never know how much more we have in the tank and big picture here january beginning of the year how much does that apply to your life how much did you leave out there on the field david gets to honolulu for the hurt 100 he's 48 hours early he goes and observes the land there's only three first aid stations and he's mad that he forgot his salt pills so he's getting more equipped for these things he's got a camel back this time which six miles into the race it broke lucky he's in a rainforest right kate his wife was chilling on the beach the entire time she's like i don't know why you do these things to yourself Carl Metzler was the king of this course. He beats the Hurt 100 every year. <clears throat> David took four and a half hours on his first lap, 30 miles. David said during his second lap it started to rain, and he was um, skiing basically down. He turned his shoes into slides. It was a crazy race. He almost caught up to Metzler at one point. He said if he had those salt pills, maybe he would have been able to stop from cramping up his medial tendon. Had <laughs> to get, like, snipped. He's like, well, I don't need this to run. Why do I even have it? Pretty sure he iced it for a long time. It affected his race time at the end, but he was able to shove it in Costman's face again. He's like, well, how long did you train for this, Costman? I'm running these ultra marathons multiple times a year. 134 mile race killed it the most powerful weapon was the name of the chapter again this is that governor in your mind it's stopping you at 40 percent costman hit back david with an email and was like you're ready for the bad water 100 david starts running in garbage bags like a wrestler like he's trying to simulate super high heat <laughs> sweats liters a day he's losing weight having to drink salt water five layers of clothes on the bike sustained 170 heart rate july 22nd of 2008 the race began and akos was a hungarian guy 5'7, 122 pounds projected to win and david 6'1, 200 he's gangly he's too big big like <laughs> i told you i ran a half marathon i had epicondylar fasciitis I kept running and my right knee gives out. Tall people live less. We're not able to fucking run. David has had knee replacements. You'll see at the end of the book too. He gets in some medical problems. He is not the right size. This little Hungarian munchkin is going to run this race a lot better than him with less pain and side effects. <laughs> Doesn't matter to David. For the first 26 miles, he was going uphill. It's an entire marathon uphill. David, he remembers like rucking for Bud's training. He's going, the heat helped me out here. Because people walk during this race. This is one of the nuttiest ones. Badwater, 135 miles. Thinks about quitting two dozen times. Every step he's like, I just thought about quitting 100 feet ago. So I'm that much closer, you know, blah, blah, blah. Why chicken out if you made it that far? The last seven miles, he was up to pace with the 2006 winner, and this fueled him. He pushed himself a lot harder than he should have. That medial tendon was acting up, and he learns to run with his hips. He taught himself this in buds when his knee was breaking, some way to gyrate motion with your hips and push yourself forward. Winds up coming in fifth place at his first bad water. Cosman reached out to him, and he was like, we're impressed, David. You did it in the heat. 
your tall ass. David had to check himself. He got praise at the end, but was like, remember, there is no finish line. Challenge seven, you got to remove that governor in your brain, do some endurance training. Even if it's a reading, you can, I put a timer on when I read sometimes, just oops, I pressed the timer again. I got to do it again. So, you know, you get a sick pleasure because you know that you could push yourself further than you ever did. Chapter eight, talent not required. The original Iron Man was held in Kona, Hawaii. Takes place with a two and a half mile swim, 110 mile bike ride followed by a marathon. And David was there to compete for the title of Ultraman. Six and a half mile swim, 260 mile bike ride, and a double marathon. The race covers the entire perimeter of the Big Island of Hawaii. The Special Olympic uh, Warrior Foundation is like set up along the side. They cheer you on throughout the entire perimeter. 1,200 men run it. David had his eyes on this since Badwater. Was allowed to join. He did the six and a half mile swim in three hours and 22 minutes. <laughs> he finished. That's Imagine being in the water that long. Remember Psycho Pete from the uh, sugar cookie training torture? He would have David Goggins run. He called him out one night to the beach, ran a couple miles, and then they looked out into the black ocean, 10-foot waves, and he's like, swim out to that buoy. Like, I know you need a swim buddy or whatever the fucking training manual says, but Goggins, you've been giving these guys hell, making my job harder. Swim out to that buoy right now. And he swam a couple miles in pitch black, should have died there. And he's saying, I would have, he threw up in the water during the six and a half mile swim. That can't be a good sign. Wouldn't have made it if Psycho Pete didn't push him to that level. Psycho Pete. I had a wrestling coach. He was an Olympic wrestler. And he choked a kid out on the mat. <laughs> this guy would always say, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. So he gets into later his training regimen. will start picking up pace. He trains with, like, the Delta Force, the SEAL Team 6, and is going, you got to sharpen steel with steel. You can't be training with people that aren't going to put you further. That's what this Ultraman is for. That guy also would teach health because he was a gym teacher and he said I could ruin orgasms for you your anus your sphincter clutches 10 times when you every single time you climax didn't need to know that psycho Pete pushed David to the third day of this race he his tire blew out during that 260 mile bike ride he was going downhill you gotta see <laughs> look up videos right now the ultramen, when they do long-distance bike rides like Tour de France, some of them lay down on their bike seat. So this guy's like a missile. He's going 50 miles an hour on those half-an-inch tires down. David said that's when his tire blew out. Scrapes up in his entire face, hurt his leg, not going to stop him from the double marathon at the end. Wounds up finishing it, and he gets a job as a recruiter for the Navy. They're going, you're one of the top athletes. You're a good mind. We want you going around and running with young men. So he goes to Howard University, you know, historically black college. He's talking about that victim complex he had from the beginning. You got to unshackle your mind. He talks about going to Leadville in Colorado. He calls people to run a hundred miles with him on the Colorado trail. This is like... <laughs> 
people would say, I'm running. We drove all the way here from Denver to see a Goggins. And he's like, well, that's a lot more work than I had to do. <laughs> Guy just ran 100 miles. But he's pushing good numbers as a recruiter, getting a lot of people into the cause. He starts getting into at this point of the book. Everybody only has uh, 24 hours a day. This is your 24-hour mission. Stoic idea. It's carpe diem to the extreme. Carpe every hour. Challenge 8 was going to be to maximize your 24-hour clock. Juice that clock like a ripe orange. Chapter 9, Uncommon Against Uncommon. This is, again, his training. David is that Navy SEAL recruiter, so he just starts doing the Army Ranger training. He goes to DevGru, which is the SEAL Team 6 training. He talked about a flashback about some combat in Afghanistan. He was in a helicopter, and there was some counterinsurgency. He had to man the M60. He's shooting 500 rounds per minute on some Islams. <laughs> and he said this was a radical group in Thailand. I'm sorry, why did Malaysia come up? I didn't even know we were doing the uh, black ops in Thailand right now. So he definitely has some crazier stories that didn't come out in this book. Hopefully in the future he does a tell-all. He talked about the Florida Ranger School. You jump out of a plane, you go to Fort Walton on the panhandle, and they give you like a day pack and a compass, and you hike all the way down to the southern tip through the Everglades, you got to survive off of gator meat for a couple weeks until you get to Key West. David's saying here, uncommon against uncommon, he is training with the most hard minds in all of the country. He also did a, I can't remember the name, seer training. Um, you go to be a prisoner, like they put you in an outhouse for 24 hours and play a baby crying on loop. David was like, I wanted to be a prisoner of war. I am kind of feel guilty that I didn't get captured down in Thailand. Would I have survived if I would have just been really tortured with no control? And he went through that, the seer training. Chapter 9, the mission here is put yourself through prolonged discomfort. Chapter 10, you can hear it in my voice, I'm losing that endurance. It's only the first week of 2021. The Empowerment of Failure. This is when David Goggins in 2012, he attempted to break the pull-up record. New York City, he went on TV with Matt Lehrer, the Today Show, and he was planning to do 4,020 pull-ups, blaze it, smoke weed every day, in 24 hours. That's only 10 seconds of execution per minute. It's all about endurance and fatigue. In six months, he did 40,000 pull-ups to prep. He had a second heart surgery. They found out that David had a hole between the aortas in his heart. And they were like, I don't know how you did anything in your life to this point. Half of the blood in your body is not oxygenated. Like, you ever feel like you've convinced yourself that you have... um you have, you need an inhaler or whatever. That's what David was doing with this medical exam. He's like, nothing's wrong with me. You guys are uh, just over-diagnosing. They told me I never needed medical help in the Navy. <laughs> They're like, there's a hole in your heart, man. So they had to repair that on the road to doing the pull-up challenge. 
His new heart was ready to go in time, and he failed his first time around on live TV. This is David's going into, if you don't fail, you're never going to learn. you got to fail in front of millions of people sometimes. Even if you don't have the proper training, people should understand. Most people won't. <laughs> and so to break the record, David needed an optimal environment. He rented out his own CrossFit gym trains with again some of the best crossfitters in the country he does 1700 pull-ups and that's all he made it remember he's got to do 4020 next time he made it to 3200 and he puts on the rocky music from when he lost 200 pounds david sees pulling out the cookie jar again his mom had to drive him to the hospital on the second time he needed like palm injections didn't say anything on the way to the hospital she just looked at him when they pulled up to the er she goes when are you going to try it again <laughs> she knows nothing's going to stop him now until he breaks this record january 19th of 2013 david had the idea of cutting foam off of his own mattress and he sewed them onto his gloves and he went to the gym he got everyone there within 12 hours and was like we break the record today he winds up doing 4,030 pull-ups in 17 hours. He said he couldn't do one more. His biceps would explode. He said he took that prior pull-up guy's soul. That guy, he put his entire life's worth. I'm going to have a Guinness World Record. He just took that motherfucker's soul. Chapter 10, write out your most heart-wrenching failures and reattempt it. Get out of your comfort zone. Chapter 11, our final chapter what if in 2014 the national park service outlawed the badlands race chris costman the creator had to redraw it and he made it even harder and invited david along with the newly repaired heart david starts training for this he's doing his recruiter runs up in milwaukee he does uh like those sub freezing water polar plunges he does six mile polar plunge swims he's doing crazy stunts he's like houdini but disciplined houdini was a magical jew <laughs> david goggins is a kid who grew up in the slums he's an inspiration david he starts getting vertigo on his runs it gets so bad to the point where he can't even run six miles and he went to the bad water and he had to bow out. He quit. Got a pretty harsh email from Costman, but they find out that David has some sort of like Addison's disease, they're calling it. The doctor for months was calling it a medical anomaly. His heart rate when he would try to run would go up to 180, like a good EDM song. And then he flatlines. For months now, David couldn't get out of bed. He lost a couple inches of height for being bedridden. They have no idea what's wrong with him. And he's on his deathbed at 38 years old. He's like, I lived 10 lives. I am content. What could have been? What if I was only trapping rats and killing roaches still? I would have died 300 pounds with a wife that hated me and stupid with no life experience. He kept talking about this old Japanese adage... Zen monks run a thousand marathons in a thousand days to find enlightenment through pain. He's spending too much time in bed. He's reading all the Buddhist philosophies. A few weeks of this meditative entrapment and he gets these knots in his hip flexors. It's like he has golf balls 
on top of his hips. Remember, he taught himself how to run with his hips. Maybe it was that. And the doctors come in and ask him, and they're like, have you uh, considered any static movement within the past decade? And he's like, static movement? What is this? The military doesn't teach you what that is. And Doc's like, stretching. Have you ever stretched? David's like, absolutely not. (laughs) Over the preceding weeks, they get him a yoga person. And you see David's persona now in 2020. He's doing a lot of this. It looks like he has a third eye growing out of his bald head. He has an eight-pack now. He is... He has ascended. He has spiritually awoken. He is into all of this yoga. He said it rehabilitated him to get out of bed, whatever that Addison is. Must have kicked it because he's putting Instagram stories of him running in the middle of the desert. (laughs) He's got three million followers on Instagram. He's doing fine. He became an EMT with his spare time within the past couple years. David is being a good Samaritan, and he's fighting fires you know, all those wildfires in the great year of 2020, David was getting paid $12 an hour with a lethal risk to run around and dig ditches. All they give you is a shovel and you're supposed to slow down the wildfire as it ravages countrysides and towns. These are like giant monsters that he is fighting. It's a hell job. David is saying, I should have died a 300 pound exterminator. But I started looking in the mirror. I started looking for truth. You have to quell that voice in your head that tells you this is enough. I'm comfortable. If you want to find out what your potential is, you got to want to kick ass. It's about changing your mind. So his challenge 11 was to write out all of your what ifs. What if? What could have been? Very meditative. David's given some good lessons out here. I hope you guys learned something today. And I hope you are inspired for the rest of the year. But inspiration, motivation, that's bullcrap, man. You need discipline. You need to get outside of that comfort zone, hit that run, do a curl with your hamper. Improve yourself a little bit, 1% every day, three times the man at the end of the year. David, he's continuing his journey. Go along, get this book. Thank you, David Goggins, for Can't Hurt Me. I would seriously recommend this one. He's a good writer. Hope there's more to come in the future. And there is for us, because next Tuesday, we have Smart Cities by Mark Townsend. It is 2021. We are living in the future. We should have flying cars, super microwavable, luxurious entrees. I'm looking forward to the real future, the real 2020s that Back to the Future promised. Smart Cities is going to tell us all about the impending technocratic agenda. He's talking about how New York has installed smart processors on um, 10,000 streetlights during coronavirus. They're inserting in Times Square those, uh, you know, the 5G uh, COVID tracers. They're putting these things that, like, remember Morgan Freeman in The Dark Knight? He set up the grid of cell phones where by listening in on one cell phone, you could traject that to another person's cell phone, and it gives you a live feed of the entire world just built off of sonar. This is the smart cities. This is what we're going to. This is going to be a real change of pace and a fun read. We're getting into the future, baby. Happy 2021. Happy New Year. My name is Nick Muniz. Thank you again, David Goggins. I love you all. See you in a week. Peace.